What's up? And welcome to Clarity for Parents of Athletes, bringing you stories from professional athletes about their parents and how they were raised. My name is Gabe Nocere from aclearmind.com. Hey, what's up? And welcome to episode number 24. As always, I hope you're enjoying the podcast and finding that the stories from these athletes and from myself are inspiring and helpful, whether you have children who are athletes or ones who are not playing sports, or if you don't have children at all, I'm sure you can get a lot of golden nuggets out of all these stories like I am. And I'm, of course, going to continue to bring more episodes with these athletes to you all in the hopes of helping children, of course. Now, before I talk about the guests for this episode, I want to remind you that I'm always here to work with you individually. I coach in small groups as well. Both of those I do over the phone, so you can do it from anywhere that you are and anywhere that I am. It's it's actually really nice. I also lead group workshops in person, and I do those both for athletes and for parent groups as well. You can check out more about my work on my website, aclearmind.com. That's aclearmind.com. Now, the guest for this episode is Mark Kyle. Mark is from Albuquerque originally and played tennis at a very high level, and he talks about his journey from a young athlete in the episode, but just to give you a spoiler, his professional career led to him playing matches at major tennis tournaments like Wimbledon, the Australian Open, and the U.S. Open as well. He was quite the doubles player and had wins against tennis legends like Stefan Edberg, Andre Agassi, Gustavo Querten, Mark Filipousis, and my personal favorite tennis player growing up, Boris Becker. Mark had a great career but felt an enormous amount of pressure both internally and externally. And as always, I delve into my takeaways and tie in parts of the interview with my work as a transformative coach, all in hopes of helping you and other parents and, of course, children. So make sure and please listen to my takeaways at the end of this episode with Mark Kyle. That's in a part one and a part two. All right. Enjoy. All right. Mark Kyle, thank you so much for being here today. How's the beach out in Hawaii? It's a beautiful morning here in Honolulu, Waikiki Beach, where I've been living for a while. Yeah, it's nice. How's the uh, balloon fiestas wrapping up? It finished a couple days ago on Sunday, and it was amazing weather. And, you know, things, it's not quite when you lived here in Albuquerque, probably it was a lot colder at the beginning of October. It seems like we're delayed a bit. So it was, it was cool, but you're able to be out there in a a t-shirt. Eventually my son even forgot his shoes. Uh, Luckily he had socks, but he survived just fine when we went out there. Wow. Yeah. I miss that. I miss that. I miss that was a great part of the year down there in Albuquerque. It's definitely a beautiful event, and I encourage anyone listening, if you haven't been to the Balloon Fiesta in Albuquerque at the beginning of October, check it out. It's so surreal. You have two, 300 balloons coming up from the ground all at once. It's really a unique event. So, you know, I want to definitely find out what led you out to Honolulu, but I want to backtrack a bit to your time in Albuquerque or even before and get to know Mark Kyle, the child, where he grew up, how he grew up, what he did all your journey as a tennis athlete we'll get to eventually, but I want to hear about the young Mark Kyle. So I'll let you take it away with your family history. Okay. Uh, it's kind of interesting in that my parents uh, were born in East Germany and they grew up as young children during World War II. So they had some a lot of adversity growing up. And In the late 1950s, my father became a very good student in meteoritics and which is the study of meteorites, which is, which is, uh, stars, a study of asteroids and stars. And he was basically a rocket, became a rocket scientist. But before that, I just need to talk about my parents because obviously they influenced me in becoming a professional tennis player. But so my dad published some articles that were read by some researchers in uh, some uh, research facilities in America. And he was pretty prominent even at a young, as a student. 
And so he and my mom were contacted by uh, a researcher in America uh, who wanted him to move to America and work in his research facility and eventually for the government and for NASA. And so, but this was uh, in late 1959 when he was deciding on his future and he had always wanted to come to America because he had read and set and, and saw how great it was. And at that time it was, you know, when Kennedy was president, it was the land of prosperity and so forth. So it was kind of not very easy for him to, to leave. He had to, uh, to basically escape with just a suitcase and head out over to West Germany. And his colleague who wanted him to come, wanted him to come immediately. My father and my mother didn't really know why, but he had information that they were going to close the borders in 1960, which they did. So he just got on a train, told him he was going to visit friends in West Germany with my, and my mom followed like a week later and he went across the border and he escaped. If he would have told anyone he was moving, he would not have been allowed. And then the wall came up in 1960 between West and East Germany and it became much more difficult. So my parents had this loving American attitude and they came over, they moved to La Jolla and he worked for Scripps in La Jolla and then he moved up for a few years and then he moved up and worked for NASA at Ames in Northern California for about five years. And my mom came with him, they left and they were married in West Germany before they came to the States. They didn't speak much English. And so then I was born in Northern California and I only lived there one year. And then my father got offered to, to be the director of the Institute of Meteoritics, which is basically the geology department at the University of New Mexico. So when I was one, my dad at a very young age, 35-ish, and my mom moved to Albuquerque, and he became a professor at the University of New Mexico, UNM. So he became a Lobo. And I was one, so basically, I am a native of New Mexico. I consider Albuquerque my hometown. And it's where I lived till I was 18, till I went to college. And basically, my mom and my father, they bought a house up in Four Hills, which is, you know, I was definitely wasn't like some of your other guests who had poor, uh, you know, poverty-stricken parents and food on the table. I mean, my dad had a nice salary, and he bought a home and built it. He was like the only home on his street up there in, on Matador Avenue in uh, Four Hills, which is a nice part of the area. So it was a it was suburbia, but we definitely had a nice, I had a nice upbringing. Uh, my father had a, was, a, was, a, was a scientist and a professor, and my mom was, became a homemaker. And it was interesting in that uh, I obviously was a first-generation American. And if you look at a lot of first-generation American kids, uh, they have a different mentality and, and uh more, I wouldn't say they're more dedicated than kids that are born and raised here. They just have a different mentality in the sense that their parents usually had to struggle and strive to come to America. So they have this uh, idea of hard work pays off, etc. So when my mom, who was a homemaker, back in the late, early 70s, tennis was, was a became pretty popular. It was one of the fastest growing sports, very much similar to pickleball, which I do play now in America, which is going on right now. Tennis was like pickleball is in the 70s. So my mom started to play a little tennis with her neighbor friends. And uh, she actually started doing that when she was in California, in La Jolla. And then she did it more in Northern Cal. So when she came to Albuquerque, she was the tennis player in the family. And so we basically, she, we basically, in the late 60s, we became a, a member of a pretty nice tennis facility down on Indian School Road called the Tennis Club of Albuquerque. And it was a new, very new kind of uh, trendy place to become a member. It was at a waiting list. Uh, there was a lot of prominent people in the, in the city who, who were playing their lawyers, doctors, 
and it was it was a kind of a nice facility and we got it they became members and that's where my mom started to play and i had a sister who was five years older than me and she's actually the most influential person on me becoming a professional tennis player because she eventually became one and my mom would take us down to the court same old you've heard this story before and my sister who was five years older became a tennis prodigy at a very young age she in the 10 and under she was number one in the state and then she became a nationally ranked junior and she was one of the top five ranked juniors in the 12s 14s and under 16 and unders and 18 and unders in the country all due to just hitting against the wall at tca and uh, taking a few lessons and uh becoming pretty proficient at it and then she started to play some tournaments my mom would take her to tournaments and my father and so they really got into her and they kind of just put me to the side which was kind of good in the sense because later on it became I ended up actually having I believe a, a better professional career than I than my sister but she was the one that was the main cog of our family my she had the most attention she was uh ranked top five in the nation with this with the likes of tracy austin who won the u.s open they were in the same division pam shriver who's an espn commentator so she was the the, the tennis player in the family and the product she got free equipment at young at, at under 12s and under 14 she was sponsored by adidas she got those jack kramer uh autographed tennis rackets free and she got gut strings free so she was a you know, just to, so that other juniors they would see that she was playing with it and they would purchase the material. So she was, she was a pretty, pretty good player, and obviously in the juniors, and she was five years older than me. And growing up, uh, my parents were very organized because, because as you know, most Germans are very organized. There, mm -hmm. it's almost it's almost a craziness to organization. That's very important. It became very important in in my career later on. But basically, she was the one that inspired me to, to play and to play tennis. But it became kind of difficult. But my routine as I was growing up, old, uh, growing up was my sister was five years older. And so uh, when I was, I started playing at around six years old, seven years old, uh, going on the weekend, Saturdays and Sundays, my parents would go to tennis club TCA and play and I would play with some of the other kids there at the club it was a social atmosphere too which was great and then when I became what you know got into uh, uh, first second third up until seventh grade or eighth grade I would come home from school on the school bus up at Four Hills and after school my parents wanted me to do something. I had to have some sort of uh, thing to do. You know, I couldn't just run out and go pl play with my friends. They wanted something more organized. They wanted me to have, obviously not to get a job, but once I got to high school, they were like, that's when they started, I wouldn't call it push, but it was either me get a job or practice tennis every day. And to me, I enjoyed practicing tennis more. I didn't really want to work at the local Safeway, you know? I wanted to, uh, uh, be, you know, come better at tennis, although I wasn't really that into it because it felt like a job even at a young age because I would, I, every day after school I'd come off the bus, go to my house, and then uh, I would ride my bike up those hills up to the, to the Canyon Cr Club, it's called now. Back then it was the Four Hills Country Club. So there was this lady who was uh, – her name was Mary Beth Kessler. She became my first tennis coach. It's interesting that I had a female coach because I felt like that later on would influence me more than having a male coach. She was a very kind woman. She she became one of the best coaches in the city, and she used to – she was so disorganized, though, that she definitely did have some faults. She definitely was very disorganized. She used to have uh, vodka martinis on the court – during oh, wow. when we were playing, yes, <laughs> it, she used to. I mean, she would she she would have the bartender shuffle her out drinks, and and she was just a very eccentric 
she was a former UNM player. I don't think she played very high on the team, but she was on the team. But she was such a – she loved her, the kids. And she would teach the ladies in the morning. And then after school, I would ride my bike up to Four Hills Country Club, now the Canyon Club. And I would take a lesson once a week. And then after each lesson, she had organized – soon she became known because she was coaching my sister. When my sister had started to have success, People wanted to know who was coaching her, and my sister started taking lessons from from uh, from my uh, Mary Beth Kessler. And in the juniors, my sister won four national junior championships uh, in the I believe in the 14 and 16 and unders, and no one from New Mexico has ever done that. Still to this day, has ever won a national singles title at a nationals. I'm, I'm almost I don't think there has been. My sister was was uh, getting a little notoriety in the area. She was uh, inducted into the New Mexico Sports Hall of Fame, not in the real Hall of Fame, but like as one of the outer awards, uh, like a uh, uh, great athlete of the year award. She never was like inducted into the, where you're there all the time. But so as like 15, 16 years old, and she was on the cover of this magazine called New Mexico Magazine. I don't know if it's still in existence, but they put her on the cover. And, you know, she was playing with Tracy Austin and so forth, and who then won at six at 17 won the U.S. Open, the real U.S. Open. And then, of course, Pam Shriver got to the finals of the U.S. Open when she was under 18. So tennis at the time was a huge sport, and my sister was sort of a celebrity. And that affected my game as well in the sense that, to be honest, when I was growing up, I don't know where it came from, but I had a lot – my uh, my idol at the time was a guy by the name of John Patrick McEnroe out of New York, mm-hmm. uh, and I used to and I fell in love with the game. Not until my sister actually left, but she went to Highland High School, and at the beginning of her junior year, she felt like her game was stagnating in Albuquerque due to various reasons, which I'll get into later. And she moved to live with a family in Malibu, which was a very very tough situation later on I just and at the time my parents didn't really know what to do but they felt she would get better practice in Southern California because that was where Austin's were from and that was where she used to work with this famous tennis coach Robert Lansdorp and then she moved on to another tennis coach named Paul Cohen and she was practicing with all the you know there are many nationally ranked juniors from Southern Cal every day and we just felt the family felt that was the best thing for her to do but it was very tough. And when I talk to her now about it, she has a couple kids and she's like, I would have never done that. And I would never do that. Send my kids away at such a young age. And that kind of was good and bad in a sense for me. It was good in the sense that I got out of her shadow and she moved on beginning of her junior year to California. And that made me relax a little bit more because I mean, I don't want to say obviously I was, we were that great of a tennis family, but I felt just like, well, why am I not as good as my sister? Because at the time, in the 10 and unders, I was ranked maybe top five in the state. And then in the 12s, 14s, and 16s, I was top five in the region. Whereas my sister at the time was top five in the country. So once she left, I became to relax a little bit more. But during us living together, I had an having McEnroe as my idol, I was very volatile on the court and I played totally different game than she. She was a baseliner. She never, she was like Bjorn Borg. She never showed any emotion and she was very solid from the backcourt. And I was a servant volleyer, even at 10 years old and, and nine years old, which would help me in the long run, which I'll go into later. But I was starting to serve in volley when I was under 10 years old. And that is a style of play that is non-existent almost in the game but back at that time it was it was existent but it wasn't that prominent not many players serving volley I just loved to hit and end the point as quick as possible and growing up in Albuquerque as you know there's high altitude and it's uh and it's very windy I mean I've never lived in a windier place so having these nice going to these nice tournaments with Mary Beth and, and having some sort of schedule, my parents would always, inf- 
you know, once I came home from school, my mom would be waiting for me. And if I wasn't out of the house within 10 minutes, she would start yelling at me saying, you know, you're going to get grounded. You got to go to the courts or either that or get a job. And I'm like, I'm 12 years old, mom. I mean, come on. How could I? And she's like, no, I want you out of the house. This is, you know, you got to go. Go up there, play some tennis, have some fun with the kids. And, and my father wasn't really that. He was really into my sister's career. And by the time I became proficient at the sport, he was kind of burned out because he went to the nationals with her. So they basically kind of ignored me and, that, and let me behave in a certain way that was probably not the best, but I wasn't like, you know, absolutely curious, like the new guy. I don't know if you know who he is, who, mm-hmm. who's, who's pretty, pretty volatile. He's an Australian, but if there's tennis parents or tennis players listening, they all understand. I wasn't that like a Nick Curios type. I would just get mad at myself more than anybody else. And I had a little bit of a temper and I was a serving volley. So I just, I just wanted to be different than my sister. And uh, so I played a totally different game and I used to wear her hand-me-downs, her, her old Adidas sweatsuits. I would use her ex her old rackets. And I was so, and that was one of my main goals growing up was to get on the free list. If you were a competent junior, if you were one or top three or four in your section of the country, equipment company would give you free rackets. And if you were even that good, if you were nationally ranked, they would give you free clothes to try to get the other kids' parents to see that you were wearing this clothes. And even at that young age, they would buy that equipment for their kids. Mm-hmm. And tennis was a pretty popular sport, but it wasn't that popular in New Mexico. Uh, it was not like it was in California or Florida, or Texas, but playing, you know, so then growing up, my, my mom and, and my dad on Saturdays and Sundays, so I would play Monday through Friday, a couple hours every day after school at Four Hills, I'd have a lesson, or I'd practice with all the kids would show up there, uh, because they, uh, and we'd have about 15 kids, and if you weren't taking a lesson, you were on one of the other four courts, drilling, practicing, and socializing. It was, it became my life. It was, it was, it was fun. My best friends who are still some of my best friends in my life are from playing on those courts up at Canyon Club. So during the week, I would do that. And then on the weekends, I would, uh, my dad would, and mom would always have their Saturday morning match at nine o'clock at TCA Saturday and Sunday. So I would drive down there. I'd get up early and then I'd drive down to the tennis club and I had to arrange a match to practice with some of the other juniors. So during the week, I'd have to call him on a Wednesday. My mom said, here's the number. I'd get on the phone, call up David Wolf. David, you want to play a couple sets Saturday? And he'd be like, yeah, I'd be okay. And then I'd call up Todd Kilgard, who ended up becoming one of my best friends. Todd, you want to play? And so on Sunday at nine. So we play. So my parents would play because uh, this was all due to my mom's German ancestral roots of being organized. I mean, I had to do it at the beginning of the week. I had to get up in the morning, make my bed, organize my tennis rackets, my bag. Everything had to be spick and span. We drive down to the club. They would play their match with their friends. I would play my match. Then my mom would go home, but my dad usually went to work because he was somewhat of a workaholic he would go to the office and he would stay there till the late afternoon so I basically would stay from eight in the morning till about three or four in the afternoon on the weekends at the TCA so but it but it instilled in me a kind of a work ethic and then when I got to high school I went to the infamous Highland High School down there on Cole Avenue and it was a great experience I became a freshman and Interesting enough, when I was a freshman, I was 14, and they used to have this tournament back in the 80s, early 80s, called the Equitable Life Insurance Challenge, which was a tournament sponsored by this life insurance company for family members. And the members would uh, have categories like mother-son, mother-daughter, father-son, father-daughter, sister, brother, and so forth. And if you won your city and then your section, 
you got to go to New York during the U.S. Open, the real tournament, and play against the other sectional winners. And my mom and I, my sister had already moved out to Malibu and was living there. She would come back occasionally, but that was something that she, you know, wasn't at the time was comfortable, but now looking back, she maybe would have done it differently and wouldn't have done that. But I, on the other hand, played this turn with my mom and we actually won the city in the section. So we went to New York and that was my first experience at obviously a professional tournament. So I'm a freshman in high school and I'm playing on the back courts against the other mother, son, and they and it went up to 18 years old. So my mom and I got crushed first round, but I was just like, this is it. This is hopefully what I would love to do this. And that was when a bell turned on and it came into my head of like, you know what? This is the life I would really like to lead. I was watching the pro players walking around, you know, practicing, getting in their courtesy cars. I saw some of my heroes and it was a great experience. And so then when I came back to Albuquerque, I became even more serious. And uh, as a freshman, I got a little inspired in the sense that when I was a freshman at Highland, there was another player on the team by the name of Nicole McKenzie, who actually was a neighbor of mine who lived the street over. And he was the number one player on the team. And he played number one my freshman, sophomore, and I believe my junior year. So I was number two on my team. But by my freshman year, I didn't qualify for state because you had to win your, you had to be a winner or runner-up in your district. And I remember losing to a guy by the name of Kurt Kennedy. His father was an All-American at UNM in the late 50s in tennis, a big lefty. He became a dentist, his dad. And they had a couple of kids. One of the kids was Kurt, who was a pretty good player. And I lost to him, and I was very upset. But I was still playing number two as a freshman. And obviously, professional tennis was way, not even in the consideration of topics with my parents or my sister. But with her, she ended up going to UCLA, and she played number one, and then won the NCAA team championship. Back then, it was the AIAW in her freshman year. She got to the semifinals of the NCAA individual tournament, was an All-American. She went on the tour. She got to 58 in the world on the WTA tour. She had a couple injuries, but she only played for a few years. So that's how she, how she ended up. And now she lives in Baton Rouge, where she became a tennis coach after she retired in the Southeast. She met an orthodontist. They have, she has a couple of kids, and she's a homemaker, homemaker like my mom was. But my mom worked a little bit. She did some modeling, which was kind of, kind of fun, and I used to do some of the little pick picks with her, some of the shoots with her out on the Indian reservations. But she was very into fitness and did tons of jazzercise and always wanted me to work on that. Even at a young age, I would, before school and high school, would go for a, a two-mile run every day for four years. Every morning I would run around Villa Serena up there in Four Hills. I remember the whole route I would take, even in the cold. You know, everyone has these stories walking to school in the snow. I know this sounds bad, but I did. I really would run in the morning and we had a little weight room downstairs by the playroom where we had a ping pong table. And I used to lift weights a few days a week, even in high school back then. So I was really into, you know, following my heroes, especially my sister's footsteps, but never really thinking that I had a chance to go on the tour. So then at Highland, my sophomore year I qualified for state both Nicole and I in our districts I was he was a winner and I was a runner-up in the district so we both qualified and we were put on opposite sides of the draw um, at the state tournament it was interesting in that when I qualified I would be on the opposite side of my number one player but he my sophomore junior year was always on the same side of this infamous player and the people who know who are listening, who are New Mexico tennis people, this guy named Mike Velasquez was a hell of a player. And he would play my number one player in the semis. And I, my sophomore year, got all the way to the finals of the state. So I was feeling great. So I, here I was as a sophomore, a state runner-up, but I was still number two on the team, and that kind of irked me. Then my junior year, the same thing happened again. 
I got to the finals, got crushed by Velasquez, and I never beat this guy, Mike Velasquez. Even I came back to play a tournament when I was starting early on the pro tour called the New Mexico Open, which was a small prize money tournament, played at TCA, but now it's played at Tanawan Country Club. Uh, and I would play, I came back after I was playing on the mini tour, which is similar to golf, the futures tour. And I lost to Velasquez, who was a little overweight, and he still, and he beat me in three sets. And so even in practice, because we used to practice a lot, I could never beat the guy. And I think he had a little bit of a, not a grudge against each other. We respect each other, but he just, I played totally different than him. I was a serving volleyer. He was left-handed. He was a baseliner, counter puncher. He was from the Valley. His dad was a truck driver. I lived in four Hills. His mom, my mom, my dad was a scientist, blah, blah, blah. But we respected each other and I never beat him in practice nor if ever um, in any competition growing up in New Mexico. And that later on, turned out to be one of my uh, motivation to play. And I remember it when I was playing in the final round of singles qualifying at the Wimbledon Championships in Wimbledon, England. And I won that match and I qualified for the main draw of the biggest tournament in the world. I just remember looking up after I won and saying, yes, I got in. Thinking back to my days when I was playing Velasquez in a high school match at Valley with there's no windscreens and it's, it's like 50 mile per hour winds. And I was just like, this is absolutely nuts. And he would beat me with his lobs when I would come into net. So I definitely thought about my upbringing when I was, ended up playing on the tour. So then my senior year, Velasquez graduates. And my last couple of years in high school, I qualified for the nationals. And my dad would send me to a couple nationals. He would pay for it to uh, Kalamazoo and the hard course. And I did pretty well in doubles. I always became pretty proficient in doubles because of the high altitude, and I served in volleyed. So there really wasn't any people locally that I could look up to except for my sister, who, who, who went to, you know, which was great to have that in the household. But then again, there was still, I still felt a little pressure from the peer group in New Mexico tennis to be like, well, why isn't your brother as good as you and blah, blah, blah. But I think I read into it way too much. People didn't really care. I was a nice kid off the court. I was played very fair, was very intense on the court. And um, my, like I said, my last two years of high school, uh, I qualified for the nationals in, in the 16s and the 18s. And I went and played those tournaments. And then at that point, I still had no inclination of being a professional following in my sister's footsteps. Uh, I was playing these tournaments, just trying to get a high sectional ranking. And then my sister obviously went to UCLA. And that was like, to me, was oh, one of my goals. I wanted to be like her. I wanted to go to that school. And so my junior year, I, my father was a professor. I got one of the one of his books who listed all the geology departments in the country. There's a, and so I wrote a form letter to the coaches because at the time I was ranked 100 in the nation was my ranking. And again, my sister was top five. So I was 100 in the 18s, but I was eight in the doubles. And at the time, which is still is, you get 4.5 scholarships per university team in Division One and in Division Two. Division three, as you know, there's no scholarships. So I, in order to, be, to play for a top 25 team, I don't think my singles ranking was high enough, but I applied to UCLA, talked to the coach. He told me, yeah, we'd love to have you in a letter. He wrote my letter. I was so happy. You can be a walk-on at UCLA. I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty good. I tell my father, and he goes, I am not paying for your college. I've put enough time and energy. I've sent you to a few national tournaments these last years. I've spent enough on your lessons. You need to get a full scholarship or I'm not going to, This is, you know, or, or you're not going to college. I'm not going to pay for it. Wow. So at the time, David Getz was the coach at New Mexico, and I really wouldn't mind going to New Mexico. And I remember going on my, the coach took me on a recruiting dinner, took my dad and I, to Trombinos. I don't know. Is there still Trombinos out there in the there is uh, on Academy? Trom yeah, there's still Trombinos. <laughs> <laughs> no way. No, that was a to me, that was that was a nice place. So you know, he's 
David Getz asked me, you can go anywhere you want in town. So I was like, I loved pasta. So I said, we're going to Trombino's. So we got dressed up and he took me there. And I had already been around the whole campus because my dad was a professor. I used to go with him to his office. So I knew that like the back of my hand. I wanted to follow in Tim Garcia's footsteps and go to New Mexico. There was another guy that Mary Beth would pay to play me and crush me in the junior when I was up at Four Hills. This guy by the name of Steve Otero, who was uh, worked for Mary Beth. He was a standout player at New Mexico. So I wanted to follow in those guys' footsteps. But at the time, he told me he didn't have a full ride. He had offered it to Velasquez, and Velasquez didn't get in or qualified due to his ACT scores. And eventually he sort of fizzled out. And, but basically he told me he'd love to have me, but he couldn't give me a scholarship. So I was very upset. I was really like, and that was another motivating factor in me. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go somewhere. And I'm going to just prove to New Mexico that I can play at the highest level. So I was upset with the, the Lobos didn't give me a full ride. So I got that book and I wrote a form letter to 150 letters. Dear coach, my name is Mark Kyle. I play Highland. I won the state championship, blah, blah, blah. Here's my national ranking. And I sent it out, went to the post office. My dad, I, I got the 150 letters to 150 Division One schools. I sent them all out because back at that time, they didn't have this recruit internet service where you can – post your video and, mm-hmm. and your star, you know, now it's very, or they have services that can find, can find these schools. And so I fortunately got a couple offers. I got one offer for 75% at BYU. And my father, my friend of my, I had a good friend in high school and his, his uh, father was a diehard Lobo basketball fan. And when he found out that I was maybe going to go to BYU, he went nuts because back in the 80s, there was a huge rivalry. And there still is, I think, between BYU and the Lobos. They do not like each other. And he told me, over my dead body, are you going to BYU? And that was a friend of my dad's who was a big <laughs> bo- a booster for the Lobos. So that kind of – and he really was serious. So I went on a recruiting trip to this place called the University of South Florida, which I'd never heard of. And they offered me a scholarship and my dad's like, this is it. You take it. You know, we've invested enough in your tennis and, uh, uh, you know, you, uh, you got to take, take this full ride offer. So I signed with South Florida and interesting enough during growing up at Highland and my junior, my temper was so bad. I didn't really even want my family members to watch because I would just get so upset. And I think it was due to just, the success that my sister had had and my dad, to be honest, he just told me the other day, he was just embarrassed. He couldn't even watch me play because some during the match, everything would be okay. But then at a certain time, if I missed the ball, I might flip out and throw my racket over the fence and do something stupid. So he was embarrassed sometimes to come watch me play. So he didn't. And so they just left me alone. They just let me. And that proved that being undisciplined in some aspects affected my later life. And um, uh, we can go into that too. But basically, uh, you know, they were very disciplinarians and they were just very organized, but they basically let me do my own thing and were, but they pushed me to to play and to practice, which I am thankful for that. It was either get a job or practice tennis. And I, I just feel like that, and play a lot of matches is what I, I, I would recommend to any of the New Mexico tennis parents is now I see kids practice, just go to the tournaments and they don't play with each other. You got to practice and play sets and compete with other kids, you know, other than just the tournaments. And I feel as, as that was the main ingredient that led me to become a professional tennis player, mainly a double specialist on the ATP World Tour, was that I competed so much. Even in the juniors, I'd practice during the week. I'd play a tournament at least once a month. So I was playing a tournament at least once a month, and then a nationals, and just competing, playing over and over. And so then I went to South Florida. I got a full ride. They had a pretty good schedule. So I get to Florida, and I'm playing every day in the sun, and it's really humid. And I broke a couple rackets because it slipped out of my hand. It was so humid. And that's when I first started wearing sweatbands. And then I played number one at South Florida, 
Uh, I improved a lot that summer. And then in the summers, I played the national amateur circuit. And as far as the question is, is who would pay for it? Well, in the, for my freshman year, I, I met a man who was a, a tennis coach in Germany who at the time, as, as they do now with soccer, which you're very familiar with, they have club tennis, just like they have club soccer. They have different levels. Of course, you mm -hmm. see on TV, they have Bundesliga soccer. Well, in Germany, they have Bundesliga tennis, and there's 11 teams. And then they have Regionalliga, just like in Germany, which is second division tennis. And those are clubs. It's all run by tennis clubs, just like Byron Minchin is actually a football club. It's not a – or at the beginning there, it's a football club at a building with a facility, and you play soccer. That's how it started. I believe I'm right. So they had the same for tennis. And they had Reagan all or Verbunds Liga, and it would go down to probably to about – and they'd even have it for age groups and so forth. But the highest level was Bundesliga, which became one of my goals after I met this coach who was teaching. He was an American, and he, had, he wasn't that great of a player. But he became influential in my, my life in the sense that he kind of directed me and showed me and gave me some confidence that I can make a living playing professional tennis. So he wrote a letter to some schools in Florida because that is where he was working before he moved to Germany. He worked at a very famous tennis academy called Harry Hopman's Tennis Academy out in St. Petersburg. And that is where Borg, Bjorn Borg, a Grand Slam champion from Sweden, and Vitas Gerolaitis, top world-class player in America, would train, and it was a place where many people would train. And so he worked there and learned under those coaches how to work with great players. And so he was looking for a player for his club, and I believe it was Division Four. And I was a freshman. They would pay for my airfare and my expenses. I wasn't breaking the NCAA rules, so I did it. So I was always competing always competing two years but basically my parents were instilling in me instead of being mediocre at a few things why don't you become really good at one sport or one thing and I feel like now you know all the top athletes profess oh play different sports play different sports like I hear Roger Federer say that and, and he only talks about practicing a few hours a week at a young age but listen we're not all Roger Federer's you know, he was, he's so talented and he's just, a, those people that are at the top of the game are freaks. The chances of becoming even at that level is, is it's never going to happen. It's like getting bitten by a great white shark. So <laughs> when they, when they, when they profess playing all these different sports, that kind of bothers me in the sense that, no, I don't think that should be it. I think if you're, especially in tennis, because it's it's it, it's 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 not easy. It's not an easy sport. Not like any other sport is easy at the highest level. But like you got to really specialize and just try to love find one thing, and then once you become really good at it, it will help you later in life. But you know, I definitely did have some problems growing up, and like any kid. But I really enjoyed playing. And then at South Florida, back to the story of the summer when I went and played club tennis. My I. I uh, would always compete even after my freshman year. We won our conference, but at that time, only 16 teams qualified for the NCAA Team Tennis Championships. And unfortunately, I was pretty streaky individually. They have the individual NCAAs and 64 players get in, but my ranking at my freshman year was like barely above 500, but I was beating, but I was playing number one at, against the Miami Hurricanes, Florida Seminoles, Florida Gators, Alabama Crimson Tide. We had a pretty good schedule, Auburn Tigers. So I was winning and I was improving. But then the key, I think, was playing is you got to just keep doing it full year, all year round, and trying and playing as many different types of events on different types of surfaces. So I went and played in Germany on the clay. Then I came back and I had saved a little money from Germany. And then I would go play the national amateur circuit and then I'd be back in school again. And so then my sophomore year, uh, the summer of my sophomore year, um, I ended up uh, playing the futures tour, which is a mini golf tour. And, but before that, my sophomore year, I started doing well in doubles with this player from Spain and we, 
we uh, were ranked 11 in the country, and we ended up the year 28 in the nation, and they have 32 teams that they take to the tournament, and we didn't get in, mainly due to just our region of the country. They took a certain amount, but then there was like we had to deal with LSU, all the SEC, SEC teams, and so we didn't get in, but uh, I was very upset with that. And then in the sophomore, my sophomore year, I did well on the Futures Tour in the USTAs, which is the smallest level entry-level tournaments. There's three levels of professional tournaments in the world. There's the ATP World Tour and the majors, like the US Open, that's the highest level. That's what you see on TV. And then they have the Challenger Tour, which if you have 24-hour tennis channel, they show some of those events. Then below that is the Future Tours, very similar and equal to single-A baseball. So that's single A, and then you go to double A, which is the challenger, and then and triple A, which is the challenger. And then when you hit the show, that's when you're playing the ATP World Tour events at the highest level. And it all goes on computer points. The more prize money in the event, the more points you're, is to be had. So at the, and, and anyone basically can play a futures event if you have some sort of amateur ranking, and it will get you into the qualifying of a future rent. It's very difficult. You have to win three or four matches in the qualifying. Then you're in the main draw. Then you got to win a few matches. And sometimes in the futures, if you win a futures event, you get 10 points, let's say. But if you win a round in an ATP World Tour event, you might get 65. So that's how the parity is. And you have to work your way up. Some players like Sampras and Federer and uh, most of the top players uh, but not not all of them uh, did not work their way up. It's just like in baseball. Some guys get sent straight to the big leagues, and then there's guys who played 10 years in the minors before they are called up to play for the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. So same in tennis. But it's no one's calling you up. It's all up to you. If you win matches, you get computer points, you go on the computer, and you get a world ranking. So if you're 620 in the world, you can – Count, you can probably bet that you can get into any futures event in the whole world. And they have about, oh, at least 20 future events a week globally. And then they have about 10 challenger events globally. And then they have two or three ATP World Tour events globally. So then you can get into those events. All in, it's all based on computer rankings, just like the golf tour, I believe. So there's no... Uh, I don't know the term where there we're like in soccer where your coach picks you and says, okay, we're going to put David Beckham on our team. He's good, but mm -hmm. that's much more, uh, it's much more sub, uh, uh, what's the word? It's much more, uh, subjective, or subjective. subjective versus, mm -hmm. yes, versus this guy's ranked 622 and that is his ranking and he gets in. If you're 122, he's played enough tournaments. He's won enough matches and he gets in. Obviously, to get to those, to play those events, especially the futures, you need to have financing. So back when I played the futures, my sophomore year out of college, I played, they had a system where if you were an amateur or collegiate player, you could, they would take all the collegiate amateurs in the tournament and the, all the results and they would average it out to how well they have done and they would give you a check for that and that was still by the rules. It was a great system. I don't know if they have it now. So when I played the, the future circuit in the States, which is they have it every summer, I would break even basically because sometimes other collegiate players, you know, most of the players playing in the future events in the States at least are American collegiate, are collegiate players. And so they still want to retain their eligibility. So they play uh, uh, the futures and then they get – uh, it depends on how well all the players did. They take the average, and you pick up five hundred to eight hundred dollars a week. And usually, each tournament has housing with families because most of these future events are in small towns that would never get a chance to hold a big ATP World Tour event. Most ATP World Tour events, for instance, like this week, one is in Stockholm, one is in Antwerp, and one is in Moscow. So that's there's three going on, and they're in big major cities. But futures, you'd be playing in Dotham, Alabama one weekend, 
and then the next week it would go to Monroe, Louisiana. And those were still – every level was fun. Junior tennis was a lot of fun. Then you play collegiately. You're on a team. We won our conference a couple times. And like I said, only 16 teams qualified for the NCAAs uh, back in the 80s. But now there's 64 teams. And every conference winner gets an automatic bid. So we would have gone if they would have had the expanded, but we weren't top 16. We were probably ranked about 30, 35. But I played number one on my team, singles and doubles, and I really improved in Florida. And then my junior year, after I did well that sophomore year, funny, funny, funny thing enough, funny enough, UCLA had a player who transferred to SMU, a guy by the name of Tim Trigero. He left UCLA. He was on a full scholarship. And he went to SMU, and they had a full scholarship open to UCLA. And since I had won a Futures event as an amateur from South Florida, and I was kind of known in the collegiate ranks, the UCLA, one of the players in UCLA says, we would like you to come and transfer. Again, they were always contending for the national championship. And I was so ecstatic. I was like, you serious? So I, my goal of going to UCLA could have happened, but I went to my coach, who it back in the day gave me a shot by giving me a full ride. He didn't have to, but he refused to release me, which means that those days you needed to get a release. I still, that, still think that happens now. Your coach has to release you so you can immediately play. If not, you have to redshirt a year, and that never happens in, a, in tennis where you give a redshirt player a full ride because you only have four and a half per team mm-hmm. and, six, six, and six players play. So my coach wouldn't release me. That kind of bummed me out, but I was like, okay. But at the end of my – middle of my junior year, I played some challengers in South Africa. I flew down to South Africa, took my finals early, and I came back, and I was ranked 268 in the world. And that was – I was the second highest collegiate tennis player in 1987 uh, – uh, in the world, number one, there was one guy named Jeff Tarango who was who became famous for his def- being defaulted at Wimbledon during his career, and he was on the world NBC World News. He had a major meltdown, one of the biggest meltdowns. We actually ended up playing doubles together uh, for a year on the world tour. But he was 80 in the world, and he was the number one player at Stanford, and I was 268, and I was the number one player at South Florida, but we were the two highest ranked collegians in the world. And, uh, and my team wasn't even ranked top 25. So I was thinking, well, is, is it time to move on? But I was thinking, well, I need to have some support. And that's where being organized and my parents, growing up with my parents, the organizational and disciplinarian attitudes towards me in the sense of practicing every day, being prepared, playing you know I did have one day off a week which would have been was Mondays always growing up but and it also proves that you don't really need to go to a tennis academy to become a professional tennis player and I still believe that's true but I can say it and I want to be proven wrong there'll never be another tennis player that grows up in out in the state of New Mexico all the way through high school and goes on to play main draw singles at Wimbledon or makes a living playing tennis and I will say that emphatically and hopefully that will inspire a little Navajo uh, Native American up there in Gallup to start hitting against that wall and beat my record not that I was a great champion because I wanted to make one thing clear I was my highest singles ranking was 167 and my highest doubles ranking was 32 I did play in Wimbledon main draw in 1991 and 1993 whoever came out of the state who graduated high school that played in the main draw of Wimbledon. My sister, who I know it sounds bad, I do not count her because she left her junior year. I know that's probably not fair because she got to 68 in the world. So even in either gender, I'm going to say I'm the GOAT, which is a very arrogant thing, but I'm going to put that down on paper and for the record just to hopefully inspire some kids, some players, who are growing up in Albuquerque, Las Cruces, Farmington, where, hey, if, if uh, what's the linebackers, if Erlocker can come out of, if he can come out of Farmington, someone can, can, can and do better than I did on the tour. And obviously I was by no means a champion, but I was a player 
on the tour, and I won five ATP World Tour t- doubles titles. Uh, and so then, basically, when I was in college, I got uh, I had a teammate of mine, and my organizational skills, because there's many factors to be a professional tennis player. You have to practice, of course. You've got to eat well. You've got to plan your plane flights. You've got to enter the tournaments. You've got to coach yourself, especially at the beginning. But I got a sponsor uh, to give me 30000 a year. He was a teammate of mine's father. And without that, it's, it was impossible. So he gave me a five-year contract, and he took 30% of my prize money. And that's how I went on the tour, and I became 32 in the world. I beat some big names, Boris Becker in doubles, Stefan Edberg in doubles, uh, Gustavo Cuerton in doubles. I beat some major winners in doubles. I won five ATP World Tour doubles titles. I made a million dollars playing the game. And that is what the whole, my whole story is basically of coming from Albuquerque. And, I was, and I'm very proud of that fact. But I did make it. I don't have any regrets, but I did make many mistakes. So I definitely want to get into the mistakes, but I, something that you said early on in the interview has kind of been sticking with me. And it was a couple of things, I think all leading to the same direction and especially in the relationship with your parents and your sister and your parents and yourself that you felt they put you aside and concentrated on her career while she was still living in Albuquerque with you guys and that you felt you had to be just as good as her. So I imagine you had this need to prove yourself at all times. Yeah, and that's why I behaved in a certain way, but that was all put on me. No one else really cared nor knew. It was all the pressure I put on myself, and that's just another thing. Pressure is what, other, what, was what you put on yourself. No one really puts it on you. So it was my own inner demons that made me feel that way in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And even though you... at home, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, even though my parents would not, they wouldn't ignore me. They would just, they just, cause she was doing so well. They just spent a lot of time with her. They traveled a lot with her. I didn't feel neglected in any way. I still, unlike Doug Flutie, you know, I had dinner on my table every night, you know, I would live in a nice neighborhood up in four Hills and, and, you know, I had friends, and it actually was better because I felt like I became more well-rounded than my sister because she was just went to another level with obsession at such a young age. And she kind of burned out a little bit. I had a normal upbringing. I went to parties. I, I had a lot of good friends. I uh, went to homecoming. I went to the prom. I, I you know, did all the normal stuff. I, 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 you know, it was a lot of fun. And, I, and, and the process just was a little bit longer. And I it enabled me to play 12 years on the ATP tour which was a pretty long career. And, uh, but there was many factors involved in becoming that way due to my parents' influence, especially the organizational skills in tennis, because you're an individual athlete. You have to t- I did it all basically on my own. I didn't have a coach really traveling because it's too expensive. You see all these teams now with Sharapova. They didn't have teams at the beginning. They maybe had their parent, their dad, if they were really young. But most of the guys that are playing are on their own until you get to the top hundred in the world. Mm-hmm. So how did all this, you said it, it affected your decisions as an adult later. How did it affect you and what happened? Well, well, definitely when I stopped playing, I had a hard time adjusting to civilian life, as I call it, because I was a rock star for 12 years. I traveled around. I mean, that's in my opinion, maybe people wouldn't think that, but I was staying in, I was traveling the world on someone else's dime. I had a sponsor. I was playing in big events. I was meeting a lot of famous people. I was traveling around as a professional athlete. I think there's no other sport other like tennis where you go from Stockholm the next week, you go to Tokyo, you get a, picked up in a courtesy car, you have a player party, you're meeting models, you're meeting, uh, you're meeting other athletes. It was just a great experience. And once the roller coaster stopped, I had a hard time with that. And at the end of my career, I made a couple stupid documentary films uh i made a film and and i I, at the end of my career i just i was getting exhausted i was partying a little too much and i made these two films uh that you can buy on amazon called the journeyman and it was like a catharsis i met a beautiful woman i met my wife in stockholm my marriage basically ended just due to my my drinking a little bit excessively it wasn't that big it was a problem but it wasn't it just it just escalated more at the end of my career. And, uh, 
then when I became, uh, when I retired and I started working for other people, I had difficulty because since I was so, uh, in my opinion, I had a little bit, I had some mental health issues and, uh, and also I, I just basically, uh, it was hard to, to, uh, you know, in the real world, you have to listen to people and you have to, I had a little bit of a problem with authority. So it took me a while to, in, in many different jobs, uh, to, to really just calm down and get off this Ferris wheel. But all in all, I don't have any regrets. I just made a few mistakes and, uh, I'm very proud of, of, of my uh, New Mexico uh, upbringing, and, and I'm very happy that you asked me to come on this show. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, I've got a really interesting background, and not just coming from New Mexico, but I think overall, most people don't have this kind of experience, obviously. 